Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 274, recorded November 10th, 2010. Benchmarking DNS. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist Express. If you're in tech support, save time and money by supporting your clients and colleagues remotely with Go to Assist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit gotoassist.com/security. And by Carbonite Pro. With prices starting at $10 a month, all your office PCs can be backed up safely and automatically. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. And by Ford and voice-activated sync. Featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online. And the man who does it for us, the great Steve Gibson from GRC.com. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. And uh, you promised me that the recorders are running for this, Everything is recording. Well, let's put it this way. If you are hearing or watching this show after the fact, we recorded it. It's by default, yes, sir. Actually, we, you know, we missed uh, last week. iPad today. I was kind of flustered, uh, and you know, and uh, and I forgot to record the show. We did a whole show, <laughs> but but one good thing, you know, because we do stream everything live. Um, one of our partners, Justin TV, records everything. Actually, two of our partners do. Bit Gravity also records mm-hmm. everything, so we're able to uh, go to their site and get not a super high, not not the highest quality, but as good as you would see if you were streaming it quality and uh so we were able to put out the show despite Yay. leo's stupidity we had a you know we had a backup system and i don't know i guess that's embarrassing isn't it the system that we had which was recording everything has failed and we didn't put another one in place so and i think i heard you mention yesterday that you're not now mentioning that by name because the people presumably who created it are a little sensitive to it being dissed for the fact that it keeps hanging. Oh, yes. Yeah. We're talking, that's the, the thing that we use. <laughs> the thing that shall not be mentioned. <laughs> the thing that shall not be named. I just, you know, I realized. try something? Yes. We use ah, this to okay. switch. You know, that's how I switch. And uh, and it's really remarkable. I mean, given given the cost, uh, what it will do. And, and, and we couldn't really do these shows without it. However, because it's on 24-7, it does crash from time to time. And I, I, I think the people who make it are a little sensitive to the fact that... <laughs> It crashes in public because it's not really designed to be used the way we use it full time, twenty four seven. It's designed to, sw- you know, switch a two hour show, then go to bed for the night. And <laughs> we really right. use it like a hardcore studio. And actually, if you know what what people don't know, because TV seems so reliable, is a television studio is going the fritz all the time. That's why Tech TV had dual studios. We built two 
one wow. million, I think it was one and a half million dollar studios for redundancy. So if one goes down, you stay on the air. If you're a network, you have to stay on the air. We, we're running yeah. the whole thing on a $10,000 TriCaster. <laughs> but we are, eventually we'll get some redundancy. So I'm excited about this week. Because finally, we're going to talk about something you've been working on for some time. Well, it's been a, it's a project that actually had its beginnings a long time ago, um, back in 2001, shortly after the 9-11 attacks, I was uh, asked wow. by the White House to um, explore the idea of a, of a communication system for the Internet, which didn't exist at the time. Well, the Internet existed, but something that could sort of like put out a flash announcement, emergency sort of thing that could be – could somehow deliver – a message across a huge number of, of or, or to a huge number of devices in a very, very short time. That was I mean, kind like, of prescient. Much, I mean, much faster than email. We yeah. could use that right now. Everybody now carries a portable device with them. And I remember you and Mark Thompson and I were walking around the streets of Iowa on uh, October, the, I mean, after the September attacks. And in fact, for, for that first Gnome Dex that I keynoted, and we weren't even sure if Gnome Dex was going to happen because the you know airlines had been shut wow. down for that purpose. Yeah. But um, and so, what happened was I created something called DNSRU, the DNS Research Utility, and I worked with a large group of people in GRC's news groups to experiment with the way DNS was was working and although it wasn't directly relevant to to the research I was doing, I sort of, while I was there, you know, working with DNS, I wrote sort of some benchmarky stuff for DNS, which, which did a sort of an initial job of benchmarking DNS servers. And when I had finished with that work, I just sort of, you know, left this DNSRU in the state that it was, which was sort of like, you know, it wasn't ever meant to be polished and made public or anything. It was just sort of an internal tool. But the people at GRC hanging out in the news groups, just they kept it alive. They, you know, and, and like years would go by and every so often someone would say, gee, you know, are you ever going to finish that? And I said, <laughs> what? Why? Well, and the, and the answer was always, well, there's nothing else like it. Right. You know, and so like the people who like we had switched over to using Level 3's famous DNS servers, you know, 4.2.2.1, 4.2.2.2, and so forth, up to .6. And, and you, know, you know, people who were sort of more on the guru side, they had continued to use this thing that was never meant for prime time because that's all there was. There was no other way to do this. And so a couple of years ago, when the whole Dan Kaminsky... DNS spoofability thing happened, and I jumped on to creating a facility for for looking at how spoofable name servers were. I thought, well, you know, I, I guess I ought to finish that old DNSRU thing. Well, what happened was it, it acquired a life of its own, and it became a really beautiful piece of work, a piece of freeware that I'm really, really proud of. And so I wanted to talk about that about the 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 task of and the technology of benchmarking the domain name system and sort of introduce this to our listeners which is now available for everyone for free that is exciting it's debut in just yeah. a moment uh, we're going to get to that and we have i know security updates and uh 
Yep. Uh, some security news as well. Before we do that, though, let me mention our friends at Citrix who make this show possible and their product, Go to Assist Express. This is, you know, they know that people who listen to this show are obviously a little higher on the geekitude scale than your, than your average <laughs> show. Very frequently, IT or support professionals, at the very least, the kind of gals and guys who have uh, family and friends calling saying, help. And uh, that's that's who they may go to assist for. Go to Assist Express is for the support professional, people who make their money supporting clients or colleagues remotely, people who find themselves often on the phone saying, "Click the start menu." Okay, uh, in the start menu, you're going to see a control panel. Okay, in the control, no, no, the control panel. Yeah, no, that person. You know who you are. <laughs> I think it's everybody listening to this show. Go to Assist Express is great because instead of having to go through that whole thing, you just roll up your sleeves, you send them a link. I'm often on Skype with my mom, so that's worked out really well. I just paste a link into Skype saying, Mom, here. Actually, I only had to do it once the first time. She clicks the link, takes her to go to assist.com. Even if she doesn't have the software installed, the software installs a little Java stub, takes 30 seconds, and now I can get into her computer. I could fix it Mac or PC from a Mac or PC. It tells you you can have eight sessions at once. You can have unattended sessions if you like. You can have uh, there's a serve you know a, a, a assay that tells you what software is running, what what operating system, everything you need to know. You can drag and drop files from your computer to the remote computer. So if there's a hot fix or a, a, an install you want to bring over there, no problem. It's all the things that Support Pro needs. You don't have time to mess around with this stuff. You can solve computer issues in real time or after hours where your customers are away from their computers. Go to Assist Express users report a 40, an average of 40% increase in productivity. That's like getting two extra work days a week free. I want you to try it for the next 30 days. No cost to you. Go to assist.com slash security. G-O-T-O assist.com slash security. Of course, it is SSL, so you don't have to worry about fire sheep or anything like that. You can use it anywhere. Go to assist.com slash security. 30 days absolutely free. You give it a try, then you tell me what you think. I think you'll, I use it all the time, and I think you will too. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank Citrix for their support of the Security Now show. Well, I'm looking at your show notes, and we have a few uh, a few updates to talk about. Yeah, not too much. We are um, at or just past the second Tuesday of the month, which, of course, we all know means that Microsoft will have done something. Um, not much this, this time. Not much this time. And in fact, the one thing that they that they didn't do is the one thing that they re- really wish they had, which was the very bad zero day vulnerability in IE is becoming increasingly widespread, and we got no fix for it. I'm not surprised though, because this caught them by surprise, just like almost on the eve of of this um, second Tuesday of of November. So. Um, there's a bunch of fixes for Office. One was one is critical, where uh, just previewing email in the preview pane of Outlook couldn't cause uh, could, could allow an infection to load code and uh, commandeer someone's machine. So that's fixed. The unfortunately, the big zero day flaw, as I mentioned in IE, is still not fixed. Um, uh, several people, including Brian Krebs, noted that this has now been moved into one of the more popular uh, all-in-one hacker kits. So it's now in a toolkit. So the use of this unpatched 
zero-day IE flaw is expected to increase greatly above the, the few targeted attacks where it was seen before a week ago. And, of course, that's what we expected. IE 6 and 7 are vulnerable. IE 8 is not so much vulnerable. Technically, the flaw exists in IE 8. It, it involves a problem in the parsing of, of CSS, of the cascading style sheets on websites. There's some token parsing problem. And Microsoft has one of their fix-it updates. Actually, they have two different fix-it buttons for this. Um, but really, if you went to, if you upgraded to IE8, which I would at this point, I would, it's mature enough, you know, we're an IE9 beta right now. I would say anyone using six IE6 or 7 should just update to IE8. It runs data execution protection, DEP, by default, and that's enough to thwart this problem, even though technically the browser still has it, it isn't exploitable due, due, due to DEP locking this down. That means it's, it's doing exactly what it was intended to do. So if for some reason you can't go to IE8, then you can turn on data execution protection for IE6 or 7 by, by manually turning it on, or you can use Microsoft's little fix-it Thing to do that. They also have kind of a funky other fix-it that involves CSS somehow, but it, the problem is it may break some websites that you go to because they've, they've like turned off the parsing for some aspects of CSS. So uh, I'm not so jazzed about that. Um, of course, you could also just not use IE, which would be a fantastic solution. Switch over to Firefox or Chrome or um, you know, I would say that's, you know, an even better solution. But for the sake of completeness, Microsoft's knowledge base that has these fix-it tools, it's support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 2458511. So again, that's support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 2458511. So that's where the little fix-it things are. If you're stuck with using IE 6 and 7 for some reason. And meanwhile, Chrome uh, continues to sort of silently slide itself along. Last week, remember that I had noted that it had moved itself up to a big long number ending in 0.41. This week, we're at 0.44. So uh, the SANS Security Institute newsletter reported, quote, Google has released patches for multiple unspecified vulnerabilities in its browser. The vulnerabilities include two use-after-free errors, two unspecified memory corruption errors, a bad cast, an invalid memory read, integer overflows, and an out-of-bounds array access. These vulnerabilities exist in the libvpx library and the code for handling text areas XPath fonts and scalable vector graphics. Some of these vulnerabilities may be exploitable for code execution if an attacker can entice a target to navigate to a malicious site. So it's like, okay, well, so this is what this is sort of the Chrome model is they're just quietly fixing these things in the background. And I note that whenever I fire Chrome up, it knows what the latest is. I mean, it's already updated itself to the latest and greatest. So you know, this is a different approach than Microsoft's lumping things together and dropping them sort of en masse on a monthly basis. Uh, Google is just 
keeping Chrome up to date. Interestingly, Google paid a total of $8,674 U.S. for 11 of those 12 vulnerabilities broken really? out broken out into the researchers who reported them. Google has a, and as I'll mention in a minute, um, a, a bounty program where they pay developers for, for responsibly, which is to say quietly, reporting bugs to them that are found, um, and they give them public credit and dollars for doing so, which is, uh, I think, an interesting model that seems to be working for them. And speaking of Google, um, there is a proof-of-concept demonstration out for Android's browser, the, the down version one, uh, Android version 2.1 and earlier. And although we're now at 2.2, it turns out that at least two-thirds of all instances of Android are still at 2.1 or prior. And so... Um, this uh, a a security researcher at a company called Alert Logic was essentially got annoyed that this has been a long known flaw um, in WebKit, which is being used by the Android browser, which has been fixed in 2.1, but it isn't fixed. I mean, sorry, has been fixed in 2.2 of Android, but not in down version instances of which, as I mentioned, more than two thirds of the market still is. And so this guy is, has, is saying, look, you know, I want to put some pressure on Google to, well, and through the whole chain to get these old problems fixed because a substantial market are still using those. And in fact, Gartner just came out with a report showing that Android is now the number two mobile OS. Symbian still has the, the, the first position, but Android, I think they had like 38% of the market, but Android is now up 25.4, I think it was, um, with um, iOS in third place. Yeah. So, you know, it's really doing well. And also, uh, a, a company called... Um, Coverity apparently took a, a developer's build from the HTC website and ran their automated kernel testing tool against it and exposed hundreds of flaws, 88 of which they said were high risk. They have no, and these are like uh, buffer overrun, uninitialized variables, just sort of it runs runs the the gamut of of different problems. They've informed Google of all these problems and given Google sixty days to respond, um, saying that they will release nothing um, in addition, nothing additionally about this for the next two months, giving Google a chance to look at these and figure out what they want to do. But again, they're saying that, you know, they've got a, they found a whole bunch of flaws in, and it's, it's interesting. It's in the portion of Android, which was inherited from Linux more than the newly written code, which seems to be in much better shape. Um, and finally, Google has expanded 
the bug bounty program. I was just mentioning for, uh, it in Chrome. They've expanded it to cover Gmail, YouTube, and Blogger. That is, those web-based facilities, not Android, Picasa, and Google Desktop. But anyone finding a flaw and reporting it responsibly uh, in Gmail, YouTube, and Blogger. And that, mean, that means cross-site scripting or any sort of CSS vulnerabilities, anything of any sort that is found, um, Google will pay um, $500 for in addition to giving public recognition. And in cases where the flaw is really severe um, or particularly clever, They'll pay up to three thousand one hundred and thirty-three point seven, which seems like a strange number, except that that's you know leet one three three seven. So they said, okay, we'll make it worth the people's time if they come up with something really good. Um, many people tweeted me today something that hit the news which i actually knew about last week uh the folks at anonymizer are in the process of finalizing something called never cookie which is an add-on to firefox to deal with the ever cookie exploit which uh, our friend uh, sammy Kamkar we've talked about now now several times this uh, of course the ever cookie was a disturbingly um, capable identity uh, tracking technology that used JavaScripting in all kinds of ways to, to squirrel away some sort of identity about a user everywhere possible in, in a browser. And so the anonymizer folks said, well, okay, let's block that with the never cookie. Um, I have a copy of it. And my preliminary analysis says, yes, it's doing the job, although I told them I wanted to do a, a detailed packet analysis to get a better look at it. And I, they expect to be releasing it here uh, within the next few days. Maybe we'll be able to announce its availability next week. Um, so it's just an add-on that you can that we will be available as soon as it's available. You will be able to add it to Firefox, and it just forecloses all of those various things that the Ever Cookie is doing, um, which you know sort of seems like a good idea. No kidding. Um, yeah, Fire Sheep continues to be in the news. Uh, I did a little refresh of the download page, and every time I look, it's got it's gathered another thousand downloads. I think we're now at about seven hundred and three thousand downloads. Jeez. 703,000. So we're well past the half million point, uh, approaching three quarters of a million. And we're going to get there at the current rate since, I mean, probably by the time our listeners hear this, I would imagine we will be at, well, maybe almost, but 703,000 at this point. Um, briefly, last week, there was someone had produced a piece of, of response software, which attacked fire sheep in someone's machine that is it, it it somehow put out packets on the network which like 
crashed it or something. But by the time, and I read about it a couple places, by the time I went looking for it to figure out what was going on and what it was about, it had already been taken down. It had already, been, it had already disappeared. So I think whatever, I mean, it sounded like a bad idea, and I think it was so bad that it didn't last long. However, there is something which is a clever response to fire sheep known as black sheep. And black sheep is also an add-on to Firefox, which detects the presence of somebody, anybody, using Fire Sheep on the network, like on the hotspot where you're located. Uh, and the way it works is clever. So it's called Black Sheep. That's a, it's a Firefox add-on. When you run it, it periodically, and you are able to configure how often it does this, it periodically creates a fake credential that is a fake um, uh, account which it puts out onto the network oh. knowing that, that Fire Sheep will pick up on it. With a bogus cookie. We, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And so, well, and then what Fire Sheep does is, is it, it's like, it, it's as if somebody had just come onto the network, for example, some new Facebook user. So Fire Sheep as as fire sheep does whenever it sees that it attempts to log on to that person's facebook account to get their picture from their facebook page to post it in the little buddy list that fire sheep maintains so what happens is black sheep detects that attempt to log on to the bogus account which it deliberately created and put out there sort of as bait so basically, Fire Sheep falls for the bait. Black Sheep detects that something fell for, the, fell for its bait and alerts you that somebody somewhere on the network is running Fire Sheep. So the bad news is, of course, if you were a Facebook user or Twitter or whatever, um, it's, there's still a good chance that your credential, you will have, you know, in logging onto the network, getting onto the hotspot, you may have already exposed your C, uh, your, yourself <clears throat> but at least it does let you know that someone's using fire sheep and if you aren't a user of those services but you're just sort of curious about the prevalence of fire sheep you could easily run black sheep for a while while this is all going mm -hmm. on just to have a little pop-up notice that hey by the way somebody's running fire sheep somewhere on this hotspot <laughs> so i thought it was like it was a, a clever hack yeah i like it i like it and Microsoft is the first that I'm aware of responder to Fire Sheep for Hotmail. They have just announced on their blog yesterday, and it is now available, an option to turn on pervasive SSL encryption for Hotmail. So the Hotmail no longer... Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Hotmail no longer only uses SSL for um, logging on you are able to turn it on so it will persistently use it and protect all of your email traffic um, all the time. Excellent. And uh, I had a nice little note from a Security Now uh, podcast listener. Actually, um, Jonathan D. Kramer, who's the director of technology at St. Mary's High School in uh, Manhasset, New York. He said, Steve, I just wanted to thank you 
for your wonderful product, SpinRite 6. I'm a loyal listener to your Security Now podcast, and I've heard you talk many times about SpinRite. Well, this week it happened. After a weekend of thunderstorms and wild weather, I arrived at work to find a colleague at my door sweating and explaining that his computer was dead. When I went to investigate what was going on, I was horrified to find, or should I say hear, what his computer was doing. There was chirping, buzzing, and downright singing (laughs) coming from his hard drive. He said, like Superman, I put my hands on my hips and said, I know what to do. Of course, the fool had no backups. Well, I downloaded the software, let it run, and it brought back his desktop. Spinrite literally saved years worth of his work. Thank you for what you do for the industry and keep up the great work. Jonathan Kramer. And thanks, Jonathan, for the great report. Well, that's cool. We are going to get to the meat of the matter, the DNS benchmark, in just a moment. Steve Gibson, who is, by the way, we don't plug this enough, on Twitter, SGGRC. He's on the uh, he's on the Twitter officially at Gibson Research. Do you post much there? I haven't <laughs> since day one, I think. Okay, so it's there. You can follow when I have, it. When I have some news. Well, that's yeah. And that's the neat thing about Twitter. You follow it. It doesn't you know, cost you anything. If he doesn't tweet, then you don't see anything. Right. And if he does, you do. Uh, but before we go much further, I would like to talk about backing yourself up with Carbonite. And in particular, I'd like to talk about Carbonite Pro. You know, probably you've heard of Carbonite. I've talked about it quite a bit. Carbonite is the uh, consumer backup service that makes it, you know, really easy and automatic to back up your data. What happened is Carbonite talked to its users and found out that hundreds of thousands of Carbonite users were actually small businesses who couldn't find anything better for the small business. So they said, well, hmm, maybe we can maybe we could tweak this and make it a service that small businesses would like as well. And they created a second version of Carbonite called Carbonite Pro for Small Business. You can try it out free for 30 days at carbonitepro.com. Uh, it's very simple. You know, you put the software on as many desktops as you want. The nice thing about Carbonite Pro is you don't pay for the number of users. That's how most business line of business software works, not Carbonite Pro. You merely pay for storage used. So it really is quite affordable. In fact, prices start at $10 a month. For $10 a month, in fact, if you go to Carbonite Pro, you can see the whole pricing structure. But for $10 a month, you get 20 gigabytes of storage a month. That means you could have 10 users with 2 gigs each, which is quite a bit. For remember, you're just saving your documents, your, you know, your, your Quicken stuff, your QuickBooks stuff, your... You know, your spreadsheets, the, you know, the business, the stuff you need for business. 10, 10 desktops, 2 gigs, 10 bucks a month. I mean, that's it. There's no charge for individual computers or servers. There's no setup fee, no hardware to buy, no training. You do have a centralized console, so you know which systems are backed up, which are in the process, and so forth. I like it because users can restore themselves. In fact, uh, you can log on to any computer, restore any of your computers from that computer, or from the free iPhone and BlackBerry apps, so that's nice, too. Backup is automatic, it's easy, and most importantly, I really think this is where Carbonite excels, it's easy to restore. Your data is there. Uses Blowfish and Triple Desk for encryption, so your data is safe. 128-bit SSL during transmission, so even if you are using an open access spot at your business, you shouldn't be, but if you are, it's safe. 
if maybe you have a business laptop, your employees have a laptop, they go to a coffee shop, your line of business stuff is protected. You are safe. Go to Carbonite Pro and find out more. This is, this is exactly how business backup should work. I've looked at a lot of other choices. There's nothing easier, more affordable, more effective. CarbonitePro.com. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now and encourage you to try it out free for 30 days. All right, Steve Gibson, I'm ready to hear. This is a program you've been working on since 2001. <laughs> well, certainly not continuously, but yeah, um, this is sort of, this is something that would not die. And I was just, uh, because I was back working on DNS stuff when I was working on the spoofability uh, analysis system that we'll be talking about next and, and shortly. Um, and because users i mean like grc's news group people had fallen in love with this funky not really ready for primetime dns ru thing that just sort of did some benchmarking on the side i thought okay well you know i I'd, I'd invested already in in a lot of that technology if i didn't ever finish it then the world would never have a really good dns benchmark and and so I decided, you know, it is a useful thing to do. Um, you know, there are there are expert users who want to know how fast level three servers are compared to their ISPs. There, there are, we know that ISPs often have slow DNS servers because you know DNS is just sort of something you stick in a closet and you don't think about it, unfortunately. Which is, in fact, why so many DNS servers are still exploitable for um, for like like the Kaminsky spoofability problem. Shamefully. But shamefully, but shamefully, yes. Yeah. But also, for example, we now know that there are an emerging set of alternatives. There's open DNS, which provides, you know, true value added DNS services. The question is, okay, how fast is that? Do am I sacrificing speed if I switch to open DNS compared to my ISPs? servers and we know that the sunbelt software people um have got a security enhanced dns where it blocks you from going to known malicious websites Symantec is getting into it with something that they're calling norton dns and uh there's ultra dns and um and then we have the other problem that we've talked about where many isps are seeing dns as a new revenue enhancing model where if you put in a typo, you don't get an error, but you get redirected to their own, you know, upselling marketing page where they're trying to turn your typos into some sort of revenue model for them. So what they're doing is they're redirecting errors. So I thought, hey, you know, it would be nice to be able to detect that as well. So it made sense to me that, you know, I mean, I could understand why, GRC's news group mavens were saying, hey, you know, we'd really like a finished DNS benchmark product. There, was, there seemed to be a lot of different things to do. And then um, we were talking recently about this whole DNS rebinding problem, the idea that a script in your browser could, could fool your browser's protection, which restricts what that script can do by causing a remote DNS server to return your own IP as if it was part of that script's domain. And in the process, that would, that would 
allow the script to have access to your local resources, maybe your router or your own machine, which would normally be reserved only for um, it to act with its own source uh, domain. So so this rebinding protection, I realized, hey, you know, that's something that I could detect from the from from the benchmark side. So I ended up building all of this into this nice piece of freeware. So um, it runs it natively under Windows, but we have a whole bunch of people who are Unix users who are involved in working with me on the development of this over on sort of like on the testing and kibitzing side. And so I I spent um, some some non insubstantial amount of time making sure that this would run under wine and run under wine on the mac so you can use it if you're a mac user and you have the you know wine is not an emulator <laughs> emulator for windows um and runs under wine under linux with no trouble at all um i did write the whole thing in pure assembly language um it is with all the features that it offers, 163K in size. So really small for when you look at what this thing does and see it running, you know, the idea that it's 163K, I mean, you know, JPEG images are much bigger than that these days. Um, It sort of reminds everyone how much can be done in assembly language and how inefficient so much modern, unquote, software has become. Um, it's also fully scriptable so that um, people could, if they wanted to, like run it in the middle of the night, run it a couple times a day. It's able to export its results to a to a CSV, to a comma-separated values file, so that you can use it to like log the, the performance over time. It's just got features coming out of its ears. But primarily, what I wanted to do was give users a useful sense for how fast DNS is. And, and there's several different parameters for, for DNS performance. There's how quickly you get a response when the, the thing you're looking up, the domain name you're looking up, is already in the DNS's, the DNS server's cache. We've talked about DNS caching a lot. The fact that, in fact, this is the whole problem with, 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 with spoofing, is if a DNS server can somehow have its cache poisoned, then it's got the wrong IP for a domain that you're looking up. And so if when you go to, for example, Amazon.com, you could... Your browser could actually be looking for www.amazon.com, receive a, a the wrong IP, and be taken to somewhere completely wrong. And so that's one of the main ways that, that very strong phishing can operate is this kind of cache poisoning. So, so we know that resolvers cache. The reason they do that is that they tend to be close to you network-wise. That is, you know, most ISPs probably all ISPs, provide a DNS server. The idea being that since it's your ISP, it's in terms of networking distance, it's very close to you. And since the ISP has this hopefully large server, all of its users are using the same server. So 
you would imagine that Amazon.com is already in the DNS server's cache because somebody else who's also a user among many users of a given DNS resolver, they will have within like, for example, the last day asked for Amazon.com. If it wasn't cached then, Amazon.com would be cached. The IP for Amazon.com would be cached so that your request would then come from the cache. So one of the things that this benchmark does is it makes two queries for, for example, Amazon.com. It makes the first one in order to make sure that it's loaded into the cache and ignores the length of time that query requ uh, requires. Then it makes a second one to to essentially know that that query will be in the cache. It turns out that there is a bit in the response which indicates whether it was from cache or was not. So the benchmark verifies that that second query did come out of the cache because technically you could, that first query could occur just as, as the copy was expiring from the cache, meaning that the benchmark would be fooled by by a by by the second query being cached rather than non-cached, so I make sure that that doesn't happen, and so that gives us a measure of how fast the performance is out of cache, and we really weight that much more highly than non-cached queries because. The theory is you're using a large DNS server, as I said, that many other people are going to be using. So primarily, I would imagine the, the huge majority of queries that an actual user is making will be coming from the DNS server's cache. But it's certainly the case that some wouldn't. That is, if you make a request for some obscure domain that um, is either... Um, no one else has ever asked for or they're asking for so infrequently that it tends to expire or it may be that the domain for whatever reason has a very short expiration. For example, um, there are domains that expire every hour because they're, they tend to be victims of, of denial of service attacks and so they're having to move their IP around from time to time. Therefore, they don't want DNS servers to keep an old copy of their of the domain records current for a long period of time. In any event, what the benchmark does is it deliberately asks a .com server for an a known invalid machine. For example, it might ask of amazon.com. It would look for the domain just some gibberish 13 or 14 characters of gibberish dot amazon.com it asks the 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 a dns server for that knowing that it cannot be in the cache because it just made up this machine name so it, the the your your dns server looks to see whether it's there it isn't because it's it's, it's a completely unique name which forces the dns server to go ask the the Amazon.com server, whether it knows the IP for this. And the Amazon.com server will say, no, that's an invalid name. But we, we that allows us, nevertheless, to measure the length of time required for this particular DNS server to reach out onto the internet for something not in its cache 
to any of these various .com servers. So that's the non-cached lookup parameter, which the benchmark measures separately. And finally, um, I also ask for, I have the benchmark ask for a gibberish name .com, which is to say a, a primary .com domain that does not exist. What that forces it to do is to go ask the .com servers, which are one level up in the DNS hierarchy, whether they've ever heard of this .com domain name, which, again, they won't have because we just made it up. But, it, uh, it, again, it gives you a, another, another measure, essentially, both of those last two, the, the non-cache lookups and the .com lookups, are a measure of how well connected this DNS server is to the Internet. Because on, on one hand, you want to know how well connected it is to you, and the cached lookup measurement gives you that. But you also want to know how well connected it is to the Internet. It could be very close to you, for example, being your ISP's DNS server, but it might have a really clogged, buggy, slow you know, whatever, bad connection to the Internet, meaning that any time you ask it for something it doesn't know, it's going to take a long time to get that reply back. So the benchmark measures essentially three parameters of performance, the cached lookup, the non-cached lookup, and the dot-com lookups independently and shows you in a very nice graphical display how, how this group of name servers that it checks um, uh, compare with each other. It also measures the reliability of all of these name servers in response to the, the queries. Basically, it knows how many queries it's, it's issued to each name server, and it looks to see how many responses it gets, looking to see whether the name server may be dropping them and having a problem with reliability. So we have a, a built-in list of I think it's about 70 sort of well-known name servers, which we test against 50 very well-known domains. So, for, like, for example, I actually got the list from Alexa's list of top domains, Google.com, Yahoo.com, YouTube.com, Live.com, Facebook.com, MSN, Wikipedia, Blogger, MySpace, Yahoo, Co.jp, Baidu, um, google.co.in, google.de, microsoft.com, and so forth. So basically the top 50 most popular domains on the entire Internet, there were some that I had to remove because they were sort of, you know, questionable domains, things that you might feel self-conscious having your, you know, a, a program running in your computer going and asking the IP for, you know, adult content uh, websites uh, were removed just for the sake of propriety. Um, so, that, so once we've got that, though, there's another question that comes into play, which is I can, I can rank and do all of these resolvers, which are built into the benchmark. The benchmark has, as I said, about 50 very well-known resolvers, a bunch that belong to Cox, uh, Google's two uh, resolvers, 8.8.8.8 .8 .8 .8 and 8.8.4.4. .4. Uh, 
the Open DNS resolvers, Ultra DNS, the Semantics Norton resolvers. Um, you know, sort of all of the ones that are very popular, all six level three resolvers. The idea being that you want to see how those compare not only to each other, though, but also to whatever ones you're using. So the benchmark determines which resolvers your system is using and and benchmarks those right alongside this other list of very well-known sort of publicly known popular resolvers and it ranks the ones your system is currently using relative to all these alternatives to see whether they're whether switching to one of these alternatives or one or more might make sense but the question is even if we get um sort of average values which appear to indicate that one resolver is better than the other. The question is, is it reliably better? That is, is it is it statistically significantly better? So the benchmark goes beyond just doing, j- j- just taking average values. Um, what it wants to do is it wants to verify that that we're sure that the 50 samples we took create statistical significance. For example, say that we took five measurements and that a given resolver came back at with a with a um, a, ra- a rating of fifty, just fifty, you know, um, where where uh, faster is a lower number, and this was like fifty milliseconds to respond. If we if we did five measurements and they were all fifty, well, we'd have a strong confidence that if we took another five measurements, they would also all be 50. So we could say, okay, th- this is this, the performance of this resolver with very low um, sampling error, that is high confidence that if we, if we sample again, we're going to get the same thing. But say that we took five readings that were 10, 30, 50, 70, and 90. Well, the average of those five is still going to be 50. But our confidence is much lower now that if we took five more readings, like a different five readings, that we'd still get an average of 50. We might get, you know, since we saw that one sample came back at 10, oh, we might get 10 five times. Or we might get 90 five times because we've seen a big spread in, in the return. Well, um, statistically, there's a measure known as a standard deviation, which is a measure of the spread of samples around the average. The benchmark takes that into account, and it tells you whether it would make sense with 95% confidence. That is, it is able to say we are 95% confident of the following conclusions – and in fact, one of the nicest things that the benchmark does is, you know, there's a lot of data being presented in, in bar graphs. And uh, there's also a tab that gives you an, uh, sort of a, a detailed um, statistical analysis, all the numbers that back up all the data that's being shown. But I wanted to also simplify this for the typical user. So there's a, a conclusions tab where... Once the benchmark is finished, in English, 
I I basically do all the work for the user of figuring out what this means. I heuristically, using a bunch of algorithms, write in English a set of conclusions about about what the benchmark found, telling you, for example, whether you're using resolvers which are redirecting errors uh, and not returning them to you but sending you to a different page, telling you, or noting, for example, that X number of publicly available resolvers are with 95% confidence faster than the ones you're currently using, whether the ones you're currently using are faster than all the known alternatives. Basically, I do all the work of interpreting these results in English so that anyone can just look at the conclusions tab and read down and, and see what it was that the benchmark found. And then lastly, near the point that this thing was finished, Google announced that they were getting into the DNS business with their two resolvers, 8.8.8.8 and 8.8.4.4. They also hosted somebody's program called NameBench, which was a, a, a benchmark that was over uh, hosted on the Google Code code base. People thought that it came from Google because it was located there, but google it's not an official project of Google. Um, I had the people in the news group who were testing the my benchmark program try NameBench. And the conclusion was that it really was really not ready for prime time. Basically, it crashed everybody's routers. Which <laughs> That's not nice. Not a good thing to do. Um, what happened was it sent out so many queries that it overflowed the NAT routing table in the routers. And... It just took, it knocked everybody off the internet. Um, one thing that it had, though, was pretty cool. Thanks to it having access, I guess, to some resources from Google, it had thousands and thousands of DNS servers. That is, it, it had a list of some 4,400, I think it was, DNS resolvers. And so I thought, well, okay. What if those, if there's some good ones in there? All right. So I made an, an experimental version of the benchmark, mine, because I I normally had it set up so that you could you could benchmark 200 at a time, figuring you know wow that's more than anyone's going to need. I you know we're, we're benchmarking I think 70, but there you do have the ability to set up a custom list. And like of your own resolvers that, that you'd like to benchmark. You may have like some corporate resolvers that you, that you want to test. So you're able to add those and then save an any file, an, an initialization file, so that will autom- the, the benchmark will automatically load those back in every time you use it. So I made a temporary, just sort of a, a real hack to expand the number of, of resolvers that could be benchmarked to 5,000. And this is not something you would ever want to do because it took, takes a long time to run. But what we found was there were obscure resolvers that no one had ever found before or that we had, we didn't know about. Every single person who did this found some surprises. So I thought, oh, shoot, you know, I got to do something with this. Because, I mean, basically this meant that there was a huge list of potentially better resolvers than than a given user might know about. 
So I took the list. We added a bunch that we knew about. And I ended up with 4,854 <laughs> global resolvers. Because one problem was that the list that the benchmark has tends to be a little U.S. centric. I mean, it's level three and open DNS and Cox and, um, you know, it, it's clearly biased toward the U.S., but I wanted the benchmark to be useful to people in the U.K. and in Australia, you know, everywhere globally. So I added a complete new feature to it um, where in a separate phase, a user of the benchmark is able to build a their own custom list of resolvers to benchmark out of a master list which GRC maintains. So the GRC server has a, a master list. Currently, it has this 4,854 global resolvers. And you're able to to ask the benchmark to build from that list a, a custom list for you. It takes a while. It takes like 37 minutes because <laughs> we're, we're literally going out and sending five, five performance tests to every single one of 4,854 wow. possible name servers. I want to pause you for a moment. And then I'd love to know <laughs> what. Oh, it's well, let me tell you, it, it turned out to be so cool, Leo. I'd, I'd love to know the wieners, <laughs> but uh, we and we'll talk about that in a second. But I, I know this is mean of me, but I do have to, and I really want to mention Ford and Ford Sync, the great Ford Sync that we uh, talk about all the time. I use every single day. I have a 2010 Mustang with the Sync, and I love the Sync. Sync is the is the true hands free calling. Turn-by-turn turn directions, 911 assist, music search, traffic alerts, audible text messages. By the way, uh, I got the new Windows Phone 7 and uh, got in the car. And if, Well, because I guess it's not much of a surprise. It works great. It even reads the text messages as they come in to me through the car. It is just fantastic. Um, you, can, you can tell the phone or uh, your iPod or um, any number because it has USB. So you plug it in via your iPod cable. It reads what's on there. And then you can press the button on your... The whole idea is you don't want to disconnect from the world just because you're in your car. You don't want to go back to the 19th century just because you're in your car. So, But at the same time, we know it's a real distraction. Driving distracted is a real problem. So this is the beauty of it. The Ford Sync, the engineers at Ford have really solved this problem. You keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road. You are not distracted. You just press the button and you tell the car what you want. You say, play security now, 274. It plays it. You say, uh, call Steve Gibson. It calls him. Call Steve Gibson on cell. Actually, if I say call Steve Gibson, I say, would you like to call Steve Gibson on cell or at home? <laughs> and I say, home. And then it calls him. I mean, this is just incredible. You don't even need to have, now I happen to have the, the uh, additional GPS package. You don't need that with the big screen. Uh, I like that. But you don't need that because Ford Sync has GPS automatically built into it. So e even if you don't have a big display screen, the idea is you shouldn't be looking at the display screen. It's telling you what to do the whole way. And if there's a traffic alert, it knows your route, and there's a traffic alert, it'll reroute you automatically. The 911 alert, I think that's very, uh, they call it 911 assist, is very important. If your airbags go off, it calls 911 on your phone, sends the GPS coordinates automatically to 911, plays a pre-recorded message, 
and then opens the mic on their phone and gives you a chance, you know, on the, on, the, on the car, gives you a chance to talk. I can go on and on. The best thing to do would probably be to go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com. This is a great site with lots of videos that talk, tell you about all the features. I didn't even mention the vehicle health report, which is awesome. I can go on and on and on. You could set, you could set the temperature. You could say uh, climate control, 74 degrees, and it sets the temperature. Um, it's great, by the way, uh, if you listen to audiobooks, as I know a lot of you do on your uh, iPod or your uh, Android or your, or your Windows Mobile Phone 7 or whatever, it'll play back through the sync beautifully. So syncmyridepodcast.com, or if you're in the market for a new card, go to your Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealer and test drive. You don't have to test drive a car. Just say, I want to test drive the sync. <laughs> no, love it. <laughs> the amazing, the incredible sync from Ford, and now the new My Ford Touch, also available in newer uh, 2011 Fords. Take a look at your Ford Lincoln or Mercury dealer today, or SyncMyRidePodcast.com. I'm a big Ford fan. I love my Ford. Uh, all right, so you got 4,500. 4,854. Awesome. What happens is when you run the benchmark the first time, you sort of did, and, and it uses just the built-in default list of 70-some well-known servers. That'll give you a good sense for how the the DNS servers you're currently using, whatever you've got configured, you know, whether it's your ISPs or your, your system is using your router and your Lord knows what your router is using, whatever it is, It'll compare that to this well-known list of sort of U.S.-centric resolvers. When it's done, it pops up a notice and says, hey, I notice that you're just sort of using the built-in list, which is fine. But we're, there are resolvers all over the place, some which may be much better for you. The, the one thing we've learned is... Nothing matters more than distance. Uh, so, you so you know, want a if, resolver that's geographically close to you. Exactly. Interesting. I mean, really, really matters. And so, so anyway, this offers you the ability to build a custom list. You only have to do it once. And it does take a while. As I said, it takes about 37 minutes. And, and I mean, I've got all kinds of spinning numbers and flashing lights. And so it, it's, it's entertaining while it's doing this, is you get to see the progress that's going along and how many of what it's found and, and like and what the, the 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 fastest and the slowest that it's found so far are. Um, once it's done, it sorts the that entire list of forty eight hundred plus resolvers and and takes the top fifty and and builds for you and any file, this little initialization file, so that so that those are and, and all the normal resolvers, all the resolvers on the normal master list, they're in there too. But but you get the advantage of and just an amazing potential DNS resolver database. The other thing we do is the top two hundred are sent back to GRC anonymously, and that's something for for privacy reasons <clears throat> you can suppress if for some reason you don't want it to have anything go back. But it's useful for us because over time, I would like to make that build your own list 
process faster. It annoys me that it's 37 minutes long. You only have to do it once, but still, it'd be nice if it, if it were a lot quicker. What I'm doing by having the benchmark send back anonymously the top 200 is I'm, I'm counting how many times those resolvers were useful to anybody. Because certainly there are some that are just, you know, in this master list that are that never useful to anybody. So after about a year, maybe, I'll take a look at this database this, uh, that we've accumulated, and I will throw out all the ones that, for example, never even made it into the top 100, or maybe even the top 50, depending upon, like, the, 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 how the... the uh, the distribution of them turns out to be, that will allow me to hugely reduce the global resolver list and forevermore speed up the process of people producing this personalized list. But so once this is done, the benchmark then has a a customized list that will be different, I mean, truly different for every single person who uses it. Very different in the UK than in Australia, than in Singapore, than in the US. And what our users found is surprises. When they then run the benchmark against that, they find faster resolvers than they ever knew about before. So it really is a learning experience as well. Some of them you may not want to use. I mean, it might, you know, it might say, you know, John's Muffler Shop or something. <laughs> well, I'm getting in, for instance, the top right now is NTT America Technical Operations. That's the Japanese phone company. <laughs> now, I don't know if I'd want to use their DNS. Now, Google's still pretty high on the list, but you know who the highest is? Level 3. Yeah, level three does perform very well for a lot of people. And again, it's a function of where you are. You may be geographically close to a level three server. Right. This is on the uh, EFM network that you're on. In fact, I think I'm, I'm breaking you up a little bit just by doing... Uh, does this use a lot of bandwidth or no? Um, it, it, it was a trade-off for me. I, the problem is you wouldn't want packet collisions to lower the reliability, nor would you want running a benchmark to like get in its own way right so it's that's it's self-throttling there's a lot of a lot of time was put into the development of this but frankly i'm really proud of it it's just it's for 163k uh all assembly language um more than anything i'm happy that it's done it's now, got are you allowed to use whatever you want yeah, well, that's the other thing. I mean, these are these are all publicly available DNS servers. They don't have so to make them public. They don't exactly. Anybody who wanted to could easily lock them down so they're only available to, you know, smaller networks or only to their own users. Um in fact, some people may find I show red ones where where they're just not available at all. Um so some people will find for example that like Cox DNS servers are not available to them, whereas they are for other people. Right. And in my case, it happens that Cox has a couple of very fast ones near me, e even though I'm not a Cox user. I'm getting Newstar, N-E-U-S-T-A-R. Ah, that's the name for Ultra DNS. That's Ultra DNS's new name. What is Ultra DNS? Um, they're a commercial DNS provider. Oh, they're fast. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. NTT is still number one, then Symantec Corporation... Yeah, Symantec server is very fast for me too, um, and which is in we interesting. We may be on level. You're on level three. I may be on level three as well. So maybe, actually, I'm not. Oh, GRC not. is, but oh, I'm okay. on Cogent's bandwidth. Oh. 
Um, so yeah, and that's just it. It'll, it. People will find that their 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 mileage varies. That it varies from from you know located on, based on where they are. You may prefer Open DNS for the features it offers. And by the way, Open DNS is right in there in the top ten along with Google. And uh, Google, I do because I can remember eight dot eight dot eight dot eight and eight dot eight dot eight four dot four easily. So I use Google yeah. whenever I can't remember anything else. But and I Google use, actually. Uh, Google actually is on level three's bandwidth. Ah, the, the, no wonder they're coming in so close to each other. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and yeah. Open DNS I use because I I use it for the filtering for my family. So and it's as it's certainly better than my internet service provider, now, which isn't in the list some, at all. Do you see some little uh, green or blue rings around Open DNS? Uh, let me look. I see green rings around uh, NTT uh, and level three. Uh, open DNS is no, it's just a neutral beige or orange. Okay. Um, because the reason I ask is that open DNS does have that feature, which allows you to do, um, re DNS rebinding attack right. prevention. Right. And if you turn that on, you'll see it. it the, this benchmark does detect oh, that's when, nice. when servers have DNS, um, rebinding protection in them. But what's interesting is it tests both over IPv4 and IPv6. And OpenDNS is only blocking IPv4. Hmm. Which, And I'm hoping, one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping is as this benchmark becomes more well-known and popular, that it will exert pressure yes. on, on providers like OpenDNS. I'm sure they'd like to close down the fact that you can bypass their DNS rebinding protection just by using an IPv6 style query and you still get back a private IP, hmm. which you can't get over IPv4. So now I'm, uh, I've run it uh, and it says, consider creating a custom name server list for yourself. Okay. And so if you click that... And build and custom list. And so it's going to build a list based on the results, the 72 resolvers who have the best performance... In what I just ran, no, no. It starts from scratch. It's it, it's going to ah. it's going to scan all forty eight. It just pulled a, a master list, a current master list from GRC, and it'll now run through and all forty eight hundred of those, oh, showing you, showing you also elapsed time and how much time it, it's anticipating it'll take. So that'll be counting down. How and big were the differences between uh, the best and the worst in your tests? I mean, is there a significant difference? Yeah, really significant. I mean, it, uh, you know, we don't have time to let this run right now because it'll take about 37 minutes. But right. you will find resolvers you never knew about that are like, like around the corner from you somewhere that somebody has open and available. Isn't that great? Well, I'm gonna. Yeah, I won't keep this running, but because <laughs> uh, it's also eating your bandwidth, I can tell. But uh, and if you do. If you do click the con the conclusions tab, you'll see that from having run the benchmark, um, it'll like f give you a summary in English of like exactly what it found. Really neat, really, really a neat uh, project and a and a fun thing to do. Oh, and it's done. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody said that the best part about having uh, about writing, like for a book, is having written. I imagine it's true for programming as well. The nice well, feeling of completion. Completion. I'm glad it's done. It's a beautiful resource. It's free for everyone to use. I think uh, people will get a lot of benefit from it. So, And there's a ton of, of web pages on GRC to back it up. I've got complete thorough documentation for the entire thing. 
Uh, so I think uh, it's a nice resource now for the internet. Oh, that's great. Well done, Steve. Thank you for nine years in the making. The <laughs> DNS benchmark. It's done. It is. It is good. Thank you, Steve. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's where you'll find 16 kilobit versions of this show, uh, along with the 64 kilobit versions, along with the text versions, because he, he gets the great transcriptions done, along with show notes, along with DNS Benchmark and all his other great stuff. But, you know, you can take advantage of Steve and do all those free things. But if you do, wouldn't be a bad idea to buy a copy of SpinRite 2, because that's the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. It's fantastic. Recovery 2. People often wait till they need it for recovery. Get it now to maintain your hard drive so you never need the recovery part of it. GRC.com. Follow them on Twitter at SGGRC. And it, next week we'll be doing a Q&A session, and I'm sure there are yep. people with questions about this and, and all the other things we talk about. So if you go to GRC.com slash feedback, you can ask your questions there. GRC, Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com slash Feedback and Steve Gibson, uh, thank you for being here. We'll we'll see you next week. Oh, I, we should just mention too that you can find the benchmark just in the menu under if you go to grc.com under freeware and then utilities and there's the DNS benchmark. Very so, good, very good point. We almost left easy that, to find. Left, it is easy <laughs> to find. Hey, you know we're doing because uh, I'm going to take the week off uh, after Christmas off. Okay. And most of our shows are going to go dark. And we were doing best ofs for a lot of the shows. In fact, if you go to twit.tv slash best of, you can vote for the best of for Twit, for Twig, uh, Mac Break Weekly, and, and just, you know, something you remember that happened during the year that you like, anything that happened in 2010. And we were going to do it for Security Now, and then we realized, wait a minute, we don't need to. There's one episode of Security Now that stands above all others. Oh, one I know episode which one. that How should fun. be repeated every Christmas time, How every fun. year. You know yeah. what I'm talking about, the portable dog killer. And I want to thank the person who sent me an email saying, well, you're going to rerun that, right? I said, ah, solves that one. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, on, uh, I don't know what, December, whatever that is. I think Christmas is Saturday. So uh, whatever that Wednesday is following Christmas, in between Christmas and New Year's. I'm not going to be here. Most of our shows are dark. A few won't be. I think Sarah says, I'm doing a show, darn it. So I think I had today will be on. But most of the other shows will be in best of. And Steve Gibson, you can uh, everybody can hear the portable dogs. <laughs> That'll be great. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.